You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Eternals. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. Do we have seven days? We're Eternals. We came here seven thousand years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, all the other terrible things throughout history. We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? We need to find the others. I haven't seen some of them for centuries. I. Hello. This is what the end of the world looks like. At least we have front row seats. You know what's never saved the planet? Your sarcasm. We have loved these people since the day we arrived. When you love something, you protect it. This even made of vibranium. Fall collection. Ikea. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Eternals, and the story is as follows. After the return of half the population in Avengers Endgame ignites the emergence, the Eternals, an immortal alien race created by the Celestials, who have secretly lived on Earth for over 7,000 years, reunite to protect humanity from their evil counterparts, the Deviants. The film is starring Gemma Chan, Richard Madden, Kumail Nanjiani, Leah McHugh, Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, Barry Keoghan, Don Lee, Harish Patel, Kit Harrington, Salma Hayek, and Angelina Jolie. It is written and directed by Chloe Zhao, and it is co-written by Patrick Burley, Ryan Furpo, and Kaz Furpo. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And we have two guests here joining us for this MCU film. First up, from Film Inquiry, we have Kevin Lee. Hi. And also joining us over here from Candid Cinema, back on the podcast again, we have Amanda Garaji. Hey, happy to be here. 
happy to have both of you here. Happy to talk about an MCU film in a safe space where I feel like I'm not going to be attacked for my thoughts. Oh, <laughs> not <totally>. too much. <laughs> Just going to say that up front. Uh, but in all honesty... I am really excited to bring together um, three people besides myself here whose opinions I really value. And even if we disagree or even if we, you know, just have some varying takes here, I am interested in talking about this film because I do think that there is so much to talk about here, not just in terms of uh, production and the final result, but also to the discourse that has surrounded this movie. It is currently, as of right now, the lowest rated film on Rotten Tomatoes. It is Chloe Zhao's follow-up film to her Oscar-winning film, Nomad Land, where she won Best Picture and Best Director Oscars for. So this movie has a lot of eyeballs on it, also especially being after uh, Avengers Endgame, a few other MCU films in between, but this is really kind of bringing the MCU into a whole other new direction here. Now, for the sake of being able to talk about this freely and openly, I very much would like to discuss spoilers out in the open. I'd rather not save that for the end. This way, we don't have to tiptoe around anything that we're saying. We could just talk openly and honestly about uh, the film's plot. So I'm going to pass it off first to our guest here, Amanda. Amanda, general thoughts. What did you think of Eternals? Um, at first, I felt like... I didn't know if I liked it and if I, I didn't know if I, I disliked it. I was kind of sitting in the middle of it. Um, I didn't really like the structure of the film. It kind of pulled me in and out because there were flashbacks trying to sh like connect all of the Celestials over centuries. And it was really hard for me to kind of connect with these characters emotionally because they had to show so many years in so many different locations. Um, and the constant going back and forth took me out of the present day story that they were trying to tell. But uh, there were some great emotional moments. I think that Angelina Jolie really brought her A-game as Athena, and she's one of my favorite characters. Um, but yeah, it was just really hard for me to connect to this. And it is because of the structure. It was a bit long for me, and I did feel the runtime. But, um, you know, there are pros and cons to this, and we're going to talk about it. But for me, it was, like, in the middle, and I'm still leaning. I don't even know where I'm leaning, <laughs> to be honest. Like, we, the more I talk about it, I feel like I didn't like it as much as I would have hoped to like it. And that's what's disappointing. I think majority of the people that did dislike the film were just, like, it was disappointing because of who Chloe Zhao is and then who the Eternals are. Okay. All right. Next up here, Kevin, what did you think of Eternals? So listen, I'm going to be the one who on this episode is just going to defend this movie. When I finished this in the theater, I just thought some of y'all haters out there are crazy. Listen, I think the script is very flawed. It's messy. It's all over the place. I agree with Amanda. It jumps back and forth between the present timeline, the past timeline, the telling of the story is all over the place. And a lot of the dialogue is, is exposition. Like I can give you that. That being said, I feel like the characters that they are exploring here are some of the most interesting characters we've seen yet from Marvel. I think we really get a chance to dive into ideologies and morals and how they are truly tested. We see this group uh, slowly break apart and then having to come together again. There's many moments that 
caught me off guard emotionally at, at just how genuine it's being with its themes and its ideas. And for a film that introduces like 10 new characters for the first time, I was surprised how much I cared about every single one of them and the fact that every actor brought their A game and gave terrific performances. On top of that, I found this to be visually beautiful with some of the most interesting action sequences, especially in the third act. And so I sat there during the first half of the movie clearly aware of the problems, but half of them I didn't really care because the movie made me feel things that many other Marvel movies just didn't. And I think it's it's a weird, strange, bizarre, ambitious Marvel movie, and I wish more Marvel movies are like this. And so I really enjoy this one. Okay. All right. So far, I'm liking the range here. Josh Parm, what about you? Well, I think I would first start by saying that when it comes to Marvel movies in general, I've been pretty upfront in saying that they're usually not my thing. I don't hate them, but just generally speaking, Marvel movies are just kind of fine. I haven't really ever found myself being a huge advocate for them with a couple of exceptions. And I think that there are things in Eternals that are really exceptionally well done and sets it apart from some of the more kind of average entries into this entire franchise. And mainly that comes down to the characters and specifically the performances. I think that this is one of the best ensembles that is in any Marvel movie. And I love pretty much every single actor in this film. I think they really do a great job with that. I do like the visual design of this movie for the most part. I think there are some instances where it gets a little kind of murky and the CGI is not that great. But overall, I actually do think it has a really inventive look to it that I found myself really appreciating. I do think that it is the story that it kind of falls down on. And I think, unfortunately, that does contribute to so many like pacing issues with this film. It means that the arcs that these characters go on, I feel like some of them are very clear and I'm very in invested in and some other ones just feel rather generic and it gets really kind of messy, especially towards the end. And that I think is the biggest detriment to this film. And it makes me feel very mixed on it. But I think that there's enough to lean me just enough into the positive, especially given the ambition that is on display, which is something that I really don't think too many other Marvel movies have. So it's an incredibly flawed movie, very, very messy, but I do appreciate a lot of individual elements in it that does push me slightly into the positive while acknowledging the massive problems that it does have at the same time. Yeah, uh, man. I do agree that it has moments that can be quite dazzling in terms of ambition and scope. And I think that Chloe Zhao does a really good job of capturing the humanity of these characters when the screenplay affords her the opportunity to do so. Because with so many new characters, I do find it incredibly difficult for any director, even with any, you know, rational runtime, and this movie is two and a half hours long. So I'd say it's a pretty rational runtime to be able to introduce a whole new world and all new characters, I still feel like it's a little uneven in terms of who gets enough character development and who doesn't here. It is very convoluted at times in terms of the time jumping, uh, the, the way that characters' motivations are laid out. 
because they also want us, they want to fool us uh, with some character motivations being a little murky. And I understand like what Kevin is saying here, where these characters are flawed, they're three-dimensional. Um, this idea of them being broken up, coming back together as a team again can be very compelling. We've seen that play out in other stories, superhero stories even uh, before as well. So it should work here. But I just found this movie to stumble quite frequently through stuff that should have been honestly a layup. Um, and I, I'm still trying to pinpoint exactly where the issues lie. If it is the screenplay, uh, if it's uh, Chloe, honestly, maybe clashing with the box that the MCU kind of wants to put her in. Because I've heard people say that they can sense Chloe's distinctive style coming through in this movie. And I got to push back on that because most of the directors who the MCU have brought on before, while a lot of their distinct characteristics come through in the screenplay or in the type of characters that they write, I do think that Chloe does bring a very character focused approach to this movie. And that definitely comes through here. But this does not look like Nomadland. This does not look like the writer. Uh, this looks to me like every other MCU film I've ever seen, quite honestly. And that's, that's you know, to be expected. Um, even someone like Ryan Coogler or Taika Waititi, like, they had some elements that made their film stand out. But for the most part, it's still a movie that has to fit within the MCU. So, yes, okay, fine. I will freely admit I was a little disappointed and maybe my expectations were a little high as to what I was expecting from a Chloe Zhao Marvel film. There are some good performances in this, but man, oh man, like the humor in this did not land for me at all. And I really don't feel that these characters worked well as a team i really did not sense uh chemistry between the actors performances and them being together like in the same room trying to have witty banter with each other it felt clunky it felt awkward so the more i think about it the more i'm kind of laying this at the screenplay's feet but i do think some of it might also be chloe i hate to say in terms of trying to do something that Quite honestly, her other films haven't really shown before, but it's like she's trying to it's like it's like a clash here. It feels like in terms of what she can bring to it from her own unique standpoint and then also what the MCU has to be, what it has to cater to. And I did not sense that that was a perfect match, as many people have claimed it to be here. So <laughs> I know I just said a lot, but those are like my general thoughts for the most part. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I kind of feel like the main issue for me is still with the screenplay. And it really is more so to this idea that, as we said, there's an ambitious story going on here, but I do feel like it gets very messy at a certain point. And I feel like you've almost got two planes of the story happening at once where you've got this goal of the Eternals to stop this being from waking up and destroying the earth. But then you've also got this thing with the deviants and how there's like this alpha deviant who's gaining their powers and is trying to like destroy them all. And I feel like neither one of those ever intersect in a natural way. And it just makes the movie feel really bloated and convoluted. And it just really, it felt like the story needed more streamlining considering how many characters we have. And it needed to pick one or the other. And trying to do both 
I think, really just padded things out and did not make it an easy time to really follow these characters. And that is the biggest issue that I have with this movie by far. Yeah, I think the I just want to add on top of what Josh said, like, I think all of the issues I had with the film, are, they are 100 percent in the script. I think um, in addition to Josh's comments about the deviance versus the celestial that's going to awaken from the middle of the earth, I think there's also the fact that, um, one, you have this past timeline narrative and you have this present timeline narrative. You have the past timeline emphasizing a lot about character development and these, these eternals seeing humanity thrive and grow and how over the centuries their morals get tested. So it's very character driven in the past timeline. Meanwhile, the present timeline is very plot driven. And I think the plot and the character development, they don't always tonally match because there, there's a lot of parts in the, in the past timeline that definitely moved me more than whatever they had to do in the present timeline. I don't know if anyone else had this reaction. Oh, I definitely did, for sure. I really enjoyed a lot of the flashbacks, actually, to the past, and I liked seeing the Eternals' grasp with humanity's flaws as well as their good qualities, uh, because they have to stay out of the conflicts that Earth is going through unless if deviants are involved. So all the bad stuff that has happened, which, by the way, I know it's like based on like the comics and everything, and I'm no comic book expert here, so I don't know what liberties were taken or anything like that. But if that is a thing, like that is why they've never gotten involved with like Thanos or any of the other stuff before. I'm just saying, I think it's a cop out chicken shit thing to write <laughs> into your story for beings this powerful. Honestly, you know, the the parts that actually took me out of the movie were the parts where they mentioned Thanos. Or anything to do with the MCU. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I heard um, there have been people commenting, even Marvel fans commenting, like, they are not quite sure where this movie sits in the canon and the timeline. And I'm like, yeah, I would prefer it to be its own thing, honestly. Well, I mean, it definitely takes place after the snap because that's referenced here. I, I, I get that. What I mean is, like, whenever the movie is being its own thing and not having to tie itself. Oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah. MCU, you know. <laughs> No, that's a common complaint I have with a lot of MCU films. It's very, very rare that they pull that off for me. Yeah, I just, uh, all of your points are, are great and I agree with them. I think that because the Eternals have so much history, they're kind of in a league of their own in this case. And I agree that when you're trying to make those references to like the Avengers, I literally cannot make the connection and I, I can't see any of them being integrated with other characters in the MCU for some strange reason. They could surprise me and I hope they do. But for right now, the way that they made this film, it's like on another level. This cast is so big that yeah. this feels like its own Avengers team up movie, which exactly. is kind of terrifying because to your point, Amanda, I agree with you. I don't know how you incorporate the Eternals into another MCU film without it feeling too bloated because this is a large freaking cast here. They would have to do maybe only some of the characters, but then where's the fun in that? So it's like, I almost feel that this overabundance of godlike tier beings is also kind of diluting then these superheroes because, you know, for example, 
it's very clear in, in the, you know, normal Avengers that Thor and Captain Marvel are like upper tier, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody else is down below them in terms of power. It's like, now where do you, tur- where did the Eternals fit into all of that? And I'm starting to like kind of lose this quality about these godlike beings that makes them unique and makes them special because now there's just so many of them. No, I to- I totally get that. There's it's really just there's give and take. There's pros and cons. There's drawbacks to having godlike characters. It's why honestly, half the time Superman is not an interesting character because Superman is just totally OP. But when you do make Superman interesting, it has to do with like testing his humanity and testing where where does he stand and his role to play in the world. And I, I do agree that I'm not sure where what kind of role the Eternals are going to play in future Marvel movies. But I can say that I'm very drawn to the their internal conflicts. And I'd like to see yes. where where they go from here. Like I want to know, yeah. okay. Where does um, where does their journey go? No, I agree. I think the internal conflict part, everything that we're talking about here in terms of like character, as I mentioned earlier, when the screenplay allots the time and Chloe is able to work with, you know, respective actor to help them deliver uh, a very internal and complex performance, that stuff is fantastic. But then you get someone like Lauren Ridloff here as Makari, who in my opinion, does not have a character in this movie other than the fact that she's super fast and she's deaf. And that is a real bummer to me because I really wish that they all could have been given equal character development. I I feel like, you know, another example of this is uh, Barry Keoghan's uh, character, Druig, who also has like, I don't know, like a relationship with Makari. Like they're kind of into each other. I'm not really sure. But like, the movie kind of toys around with this idea that he is someone that could go either way in terms of being with the Eternals, being against the Eternals. And I never really fully understood where that character's motivations truly lied. And so I just feel that this is all stuff that kind of just got lost in the translation to the screen when you have so many characters that you're trying to introduce. Introduce, might I add. This is not a team-up movie where they got their own separate movies and now they're all coming together. They all got introduced into this movie. Yeah, Matt, I agree with you about the Makari character, especially because at one point it just seems like they just stuck her on the ship for like a couple hundred years and it's like, just be there until we have use for you in the story later. That was yeah. very disappointing. I agree with that. I don't know. Druig, I kind of felt like I did understand his character as somebody who was witnessing all of these atrocities and wanted to do something about it, but was conflicted in intervening. And but you didn't feel like they were setting him up for a heel turn? Um, I thought that they were setting him up to be gone from the team and it would take work to get him back. And you could argue that maybe that happened a bit too quickly, but I think for what the story needed to accomplish, like I bought it. And I think that there's a lot of stuff in this movie that you kind of just have to buy or you're just not going to be into it. Like the whole thing with them not intervening with any other conflict. Like to me, that sounds like the exact same conversations about why did Captain America not help Thor in this, you know, other movie? You know, it's like you either buy in with the logic that they're selling you or you don't. And for me, I did. I I bought into where these characters were, what their motivations 
where, where they were coming from. And I thought that for the most part, the movie did a decent job with establishing that foundation for them. You know whose character motivations I did align with? And you know who I actually really did like the heel turn for in this? I gotta say, I really enjoyed what they did with Richard Madden as Icarus in this movie quite a bit, actually. I mean, I would agree, but then you're probably going to accuse me of being very biased in that. <laughs> hey, hey, it's okay. All right, listen, we all we, we've all been there. All right, you got Gemma Chan choosing over, you know, Rob Stark and Jon Snow over here. All right, everybody has an option in this movie. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, I, I really, really enjoyed his character. Probably the most in terms of his motivations for why he chose to ultimately do what he does at the end of this movie. And I thought that they set him up as a pretty good antagonist overall, which was also something that was a big complaint for me throughout the entire movie. Uh, This movie was lacking an antagonist, like an actual big bad for the Eternals to go up against. Because you've got the Deviants, then you've got this Bill Skarsgård. CGI, deviant, whatever the fuck. And then you have uh, this other thing. Was it Arishim? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. And that was all over the place. So when it finally got revealed that Richard Madden's Icarus is the, to to use like what what Kevin said before, like evil Superman now, all of a sudden. Yeah, basically. I I was enjoying the hell out of that. I thought that was fantastic for the third act. Yeah, I I was a big fan. (laughs) Reminded me of Superman from the Injustice games specifically, where uh, the rest of the team have to like find a way to either stop him or hold him off long enough for them to succeed what they are actually trying to do, which is basically what the third act of this movie is. They're, They're trying to put that Celestial to sleep, meanwhile hold off Icarus long enough, for, you know, so that they could succeed. Yeah, and that's where the teamwork aspect came into play. By that point, Gemma Chan and Richard Madden's character arcs uh, came into their emotional climax in terms of their relationship coming to a head in that third act. So all of that was coming together very, very nicely for me. Someone please answer this question for me, though, about the third act, if you don't mind. Where the hell is Kingo? Oh, he left. No, I know he did. Why? (laughs) It doesn't, for me, that didn't make any sense because he was with them up until that point and then he just like disappeared, but it doesn't make any sense as to why he left because he could still disagree, but... I understand why he left because, you know, everyone's choosing sides at the end of this movie. They either side with Icarus or they're siding with Gemma Chan. Kingo's just like, I'm not going to have any of this. See you all. But then the thing that annoyed me about that is then in the third act, he's hanging out with them like everything's okay. And nobody's like, dude, you were a dick. You left us in our time of need. Nope, everything's fine. No consequences. I'm I'm very curious because I think the next movie that the Eternals are going to be in, I hope they address that. Because uh, even though uh, Kamal Nanjiani plays like the comic relief role, he has, in my opinion, like the most uh, neutral stance like out of all the eternals to the point where he he doesn't even involve himself like you said like he checks out of the entire third act and i feel like there is going to be more to his character later i hope i mean could be an empty promise (laughs) i hope they might not deliver on that i really hope i did expect i did expect him to come back like right like during the fight but then it didn't happen i thought like for sure 
that Icarus was going to get the upper hand, all hope would be lost, and then Kingo would come in as his friend and stop him, and that would also be a conclusion to their uh, relationship arc. Yeah, that that whole that whole bit was madly confusing to me, uh, and I agree. I actually think Kumail Nanjiani is, you know, I mentioned earlier the humor is not quite good in this film, but when Kumail is doing this <laughs> documentary <laughs> yeah. and he's talking to the camera, and you know when he's showing off like how he's been all these uh, different. <laughs> generational versions of himself over the years in Hollywood or Bollywood rather I I, I thought all of that was very very fun and I quite enjoyed that more than Ikea fall collection jokes well you've seen it in the trailer for I don't know how many times at this point Um, but yeah I do think that obviously no shock Kumail Nanjiani is the source of most of the effective humor in this film and I also liked his interplay with Harish Patel I thought that that character could have had the potential to be really annoying, but I thought that they used him rather effectively. And I have to admit, I got a kick out of the gag with the cameras. I thought that was a really nice running joke, and I liked it. I, I just I I agree with you in terms of the relationship, and I understand that at some point or another, like he is there to be the human. Yeah, he's he's reminding the Eternals of the of their humanity, of what the stakes right. of saving the planet actually are. But otherwise, he was totally useless. Didn't need to be there. And, you know, it's revealed later why this couldn't be Dane. So they had to have somebody else be this character. But I, I, I kept asking myself during some of these action set pieces and some of the other like crazy stuff that was happening. Like, what is this guy still doing there? What is what what is going on? What purpose is he serving for this? You know, you know? He, he reminded me of um oh god, what's what's his name? Uh the 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 guy in in um James Gunn's Suicide Squad who's just there, the taxi driver. Oh yeah. Guy. The one who they say like, "Oh, that guy died." It's like Milton, Ooh. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he reminded me of Milton, like you where half the time you're like, "What the hell is he still doing?" But that was like that was more of a gag. Like this, they actually tried to do something serious with and have it play into the film's themes and such. And it was just like, yeah, I, I get that. And yet when he um, when they leave mm-hmm. and he gives that heartfelt goodbye to them, like, yeah, that got me. Yeah, that got me. I, I fell for it. <laughs> I think everyone here might have a different best in show of the cast. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But Amanda, who would you say out of the cast here? Who was the MVP for you? Oh, wow. I had like a top three, uh, but I think Fastos for me was my favorite part of the whole thing, just because he was fun. He was like sarcastic. Um, He had the family, so you have that like emotional connection to him as well. But I I loved his powers and like even the flashbacks with Fastos and him struggling with the fact that like he's trying to make humanity progress in the smallest ways with the technology. And then, you know, it hits him all of a sudden that in, you know, with the with the bombs that that were made, um, like it hits him that you can't help these people, and it, it takes a toll on him. So I think that Fasos had a great story for me. What would have benefited like those impactful moments is that if it was kind of linear and not going back and forth, because you have like such strong moments from like Brian Tyree Henry and even like Barry Keegan as Druig, and it's just it takes you out of it. So for me, it was Druig and Fasos that had really cool backstories and also Angelina Jolie as Thena, like those were like my three. 
um, because they were the most interesting. And I wanted to know because of those flashbacks. And then it just kind of fizzled when it came back to present day for me at times. But Fastos MVP, if I had to say one. So. All right. I've got some questions here about Fastos that I need help with. Uh, number one, what are the limits to his powers? I understand that he can create technology tools weapons like is there a limit on this it's very vague what his powers are even in general <laughs> yeah because i was I, I i eventually caught on to it but i was very very confused as to what exactly his powers were uh, initially while watching it and then the second question i have is yes it's very nice that he has this family and gosh i first superhero to be depicted as gay in the mcu way to go marvel i mean for disney matt that actually i would say considering the track record we have with their quote-unquote gay characters i would actually say it is a big deal no 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 no. i'm not not seeing it from that standpoint i'm saying it from a standpoint of i hate lately that every time they have a gay character like it has to be the first this, first that, and they're they're always acting like pat us on the back, pat us on the back. Well, well yeah, but like just just accept it as it is. Don't ask for our validation on this on this. Yeah. Oh, the irony is that they have done that so much for like these like table scraps that this is an instance where I think they actually do deserve some credit. But everybody's so cynical now, like you just said, that yeah, you almost I don't agree. want to applaud it. But I actually think it is a pretty major deal that that this character is in here and we see his family and he kisses his husband. I completely, listen, I I completely agree on those points. I definitely am approaching it from that cynical aspect because of, it's not the MCU, it's Disney as a whole. So I want to clarify that. I'm not saying that what we're giving here is wrong. I just don't like the whole applaud us. Aren't we doing a great job? Where's our kudos? Like just make it, organic and natural and have it be fitting of the story and i do think it fits the story here because once again this is a movie about humanity this is the most diverse cast that we've seen in the mcu you have all walks of life being presented here so in that regard i think it fits and it makes sense and i'm and i think they do pull it off well but my only logical question about it is brian tyree henry doesn't age right so at what point does he have to be like all right, I'm moving over to another another husband, another life. <laughs> you know? Well, it's the same thing Cersei is dealing with, too. I, I think, again, it's one of those things where you either buy into the relationship that they want to pursue or you get hung up on the logic and you can't go with it. I mean, I, I, mean, I think that applies with me here because I could not get into Cersei being into kit harrington not from that standpoint i understand why anybody would be into kit harrington (laughs) especially uh, a history teacher kit harrington but yeah like this unless if it was like something in lord of the rings where i'm gonna give up my immortality to be with you sort of thing then that would be so much more emotional and such a bigger deal to me i honestly did not think of uh (laughs) that point about brian tyree henry having uh, multiple partners until you brought it up. I mean, I mean, they've been they've been around for thousands of years. <laughs> it makes sense, but in that case, instead, I would much rather have a scene where they talk about that. Yeah, would have like, been fine. Where they talk about a past a past husband or you know a past partner. I mean, Gemma Chan's been with uh, Icarus for <laughs> seven thousand years or whatever, so you can't do it with her. <laughs> 
But like, yeah, you're right. You could do it with Brian Tyree Henry. And I agree with you. Wouldn't that be more interesting as a way to once again, kind of dig a little bit deeper into the moral complexities and the internal struggle that these characters have to deal with, knowing that anyone on Earth that they get close to, they have to watch them die because they're mortal and they Mm -hmm. are not. Like, there's a great tragedy to that that is worth exploring, in my opinion. And I do feel that a lot of that does get lost here because it is briefly mentioned here and there, the immortality of these characters, but I never felt that it was hammered home enough uh, because once again, it's one of so many things that this movie is trying to tackle. And I think maybe with less characters, they could have had some of this stuff hammer home a bit more. But when you have this many characters, it just, yeah, like some of it's going to get lost. I don't necessarily think it's for me, an issue of too many characters because I would actually say that I surprisingly found myself connecting to almost all of them. And so that necessarily wasn't the problem for me. It was more so an issue of like just streamlining the story. It just felt like it was going all over the place in so many different directions. And it wasn't necessarily because of the characters. It's just because of the general storytelling mechanics themselves that just didn't feel like it had a straight track in front of it. And that was what was going all over the place and why I couldn't really settle down into a clear, distinct kind of track in order to follow. That that was more my bigger issue with the storytelling in this film. But they couldn't tell it in a linear fashion, no. They, they, They have to do this jumping around aspect to it. Unless if maybe there's a pivotal moment in the present timeline and they choose to do a big flashback and that's the only flashback we get of the entire movie and then we return back to the present storyline for the rest of the movie. But yeah, I don't see how they could have told this in a linear fashion only because of the fact that, you know, you have to introduce uh, Kit Harrington in the current timeline. You have to introduce the deviants coming back and so on and so forth. Like, there's a couple of... I don't know well, how else they could have done it other than... I think what I come from, and, and I've mentioned this already, is that I really wanted it to be either the deviants or putting the you know the thing to sleep at the end. Like, I needed one or the other. I didn't like both. I thought both meant... Like we were going back and forth between two different kinds of motivations. And that's more so what I mean about it moving around and not being focused enough. That is more so my frustration with the story. And that goes to the kind of weak antagonist of this movie because it doesn't really pick an antagonist. It it really feels like they're trying to do both things at the same time. And I just feel like that fundamentally does not work with the story here. And I mean, wouldn't that have been fixed, as I was saying earlier, if this movie had a clear antagonist? Yeah, I mean, to me, ideally, and, you know, this is me, like, basically making fan fiction of this movie already, but, like, I would have loved it more if maybe it was just the Deviant and that was the only thing that we were dealing with. It gives you a very clear antagonist, get into all the stuff about saving humanity for, like, a later movie, but, you know, at this point, we got to bring them all back together, the band back together, just to get these last few Deviants that we thought were... We're all dead, and guess what? One of them actually now is sucking our powers, and we didn't know that before. Like, very clear, established antagonist. Would it have been the best antagonist? Probably not, but at least it would have been focused. And I think that is the problem that I run into with much of the story in this movie is that it doesn't have a focus a lot of the time. Kevin, passing it over to you, because I'm going to continue asking everybody the question I asked Amanda, MVP of the cast of this movie. 
Oh, um, I think I'm also in agreement that Brian Tyree Henry as Fastos is up there. But I also want to include Don Lee as Gilgamesh and his relationship with Angelina Jolie as Thena. I found their um, small mini, mini storyline in this to be very touching. I could have... I could have sat down for like a full movie that's just about the two of them, honestly. And there's something really beautiful to me that Gilgamesh is physically the strongest eternal of them all. And that Thena is like, she's like this warrior eternal who is even like praised for like, it seems like she has the most stories being told about her. So that she's got like this reputation, which is what makes her, um, uh, her condition so interesting and her fighting that and having someone uh, take care of her regardless of what decisions she makes, like even if she fights him, like I think there's something very moving about that relationship. And I think there's a really satisfying arc too, where where Angelina Jolie takes that character's journey by the end of the film. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. I think there's a satisfying arc here for Gilgamesh, and I do think part of that does have to do with Dina. I agree with you on that. My big hang-up with Dina in this movie was, once again, I hated that her... What did they call it in this? The thing that she's suffering from? I don't know. It's, I can't remember. It, it, space dimension. It was something <laughs> weary or something. Or like, yeah. Uh, yeah, Mad Moody, weary? I think they call mad it. Weary. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, Mad-Eye Moody, whatever. Um, <laughs> I said space dimension. Yes. Whatever it is she's, she's suffering from, I, I could not stand, once again, that there weren't established rules as to when this would happen and when this wouldn't happen. And maybe that's the point, right? Is that it's random? Sure. But then there just seemed to be like these long stretches where it wasn't happening. And I did start to get annoyed that this stuff was happening out of convenience sake for the plot at a certain point. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, when when it first happened, when they first introduced that idea, I was really taken aback. Like, whoa, wait a second. Like, where <laughs> where is this movie going now? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But once they actually like really commit like, oh, this is a thing for her and it kind of like 
then it kind of gets more interesting because then when the big truth bomb gets dropped, that the whole purpose of the Eternals is to actually help more Celestials to be born, which results in the destruction of the Earth and that their memories get wiped. It really does, at least for me, it recontextualizes this condition that uh, Athena has. And so it just made, it, it, it worked for me. And and to have a character like Gilgamesh, uh, like assign himself this responsibility to be there with her, including this whole really, really nice village home that they that they have and and Gilgamesh and his pie and just, it, it worked. A lot of that worked for me. Yeah, no, that stuff did work for me as well. I think it was just more so presenting this idea and where they were ultimately taking it, um, not just for her, but in the grand scheme of the whole group. Like, I actually thought it was going to have bigger consequences overall, and it didn't. I could see that. Yeah, it's it's very, again, speaking to the writing of this film, it's very messy, and it doesn't have a lot of great follow-through. But I will admit... I think Ashley Choli does a really good job in that role. And do I understand like all the rules associated with her, like dissociative states? No, but I have to admit like that very first time it happens and she comes out of it and they're telling her that her memories might be wiped. I mean, she is selling the hell out of that scene. And it just is a nice reminder of how great of an actress Angela Jolie could be in a role that really on the page doesn't give her all that much to do, but she ends up making the most of it. I agree with that. I think the character was fit on the page and she elevated it at times. And it was also surprising to me to see Angelina Jolie take on such a supporting role in this. She's not the lead of this movie. And, you know, for many years, uh, she's been, you know, an A-lister bankable star. She still is, might I add. But uh, it was interesting to see her, um, you know, taking on one of the supporting roles in this. I mean, I think we could all agree Gemma Chan is the lead. Of this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just, I love Gilgamesh and, and Dina together. I really, really do. But for me, I felt like they had more chemistry than Icarus and Cersei at times. And <laughs> even like, and even like Druig and Makari had more chemistry than Icarus and, and Cersei. I don't know if anyone else felt that way, but I do have to touch upon that because for me, with Cersei and Icarus, it's like their love, like, goes through centuries and centuries and i did not feel that whatsoever between the two of them as we saw them i don't know i mean let's put it this way (laughs) when you're that hot for seven thousand years and you're not changing at all i don't know i think i too would be like i'm staying with this person forever (laughs) you know (laughs) who else who else is around i mean Sure, there's Sprite, but (laughs) (laughs) listen, that's a whole other thing that gets introduced in this where I was like, my mind started to crack a little bit and I was like, oh, no, oh, oh." I did. I I did not want my mind going there just now. Um, I get that it's played, you know, very serious, very straight for emotion, but. mm, yeah, it was kind of weird to introduce that element into this film, not going to lie. Yeah. I. And once again, interesting from a standpoint of this isn't a child, right? Thousands of years old. Yeah, it just looks like one. 
Yes. No. <sighs> I, I didn't need. I didn't need to think about it. Is the thing. Like, I mean, even vocalizing it is like it's weird. <laughs> I know. I just like. I honestly thought that during that specific moment, like Sprite would have changed into an adult kind of. I was waiting for that to happen to like switch into one, so it wouldn't feel as awkward. But that didn't happen, so nope. we were forced to think of it. Yep. Yep. Like, I get it. I get what they were going for with it, but... Yeah, it's an interesting uh, idea, but the execution leaves a little to be desired. Exactly. Now, going back to Amanda's point, though, about Cersei and Icarus and their relationship, I do think it is all based on hotness, for the record. Um, Because, God bless Richard Madden, he's just not that compelling of a personality to me. (laughs) You know, I, I think that we are meant to be presented that this is a good relationship but because he does ultimately become the bad guy of this story by the end of it all they don't want you to be so attached to it i don't think that you're unable then to make that turn on him yeah this is again kind of a handicap that the writing itself has put on itself is that the problem with the character of icarus is that we are hiding back parts of his character because we are waiting for this third act twist where we discover that he's like kind of secretly a bad guy. And the problem with that is it means that it doesn't feel like we're getting the full picture of him for the majority of this movie, which we aren't. Right. And I think that that does give us sort of a an arm's length distance from really diving into that character until we get to the very end. And it's like, OK, that's that's a nice moment that we get. But it does mean that for the majority of this film, he's just sort of kind of there and he's not he doesn't feel like an active participant really in the story unless he has to participate in an action sequence his acting in the bodyguard was phenomenal because it was emotionally charged his acting in game of thrones in season three aka when his character had more time to develop was good when it was emotionally charged Because of all the things that you just said there, Josh, in terms of the screenplay having to limit his character back a bit, Richard Madden, to me, was in the zone here where I least prefer him. A pretty face with not much interesting stuff going on. (laughs) And I did not get that. um, I I did not feel like I got the best of Richard Madden out of him, you know, from from a performance standpoint. I can I can agree with that. I do think, though, he does get some emotional moments in the film, and I think those are definitely the strongest parts, and I would even say maybe even some of the stronger parts of the movie overall. But Oh, no, no, no. It, it really comes alive in the third act, yeah, like I yeah. said before. Oh yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. The third act kind of really belongs to him as a character. But as I said, that's really only the last bit of the film, and for the most of it, I would say that he is fine. He's not actively bad, but it is the writing of that character that doesn't just really give him a lot to do other than just stand there and be smoldering and have a one-liner here or there. But as you said, that's not really the most compelling thing to do as an actor. And it's unfortunately the majority of what he is asked to do in this film. And this is like magnified like times a hundred for Kit Harrington's character in this oh, movie oh, as yeah. well. Like, he has really got nothing to do. By 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 design, once again, by design, because they have to hold back on his character and who he is and everything else. And throughout this, I just thought he was 
an ever pretty face who was a lame character. But I also, well, he literally has nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. But with the little screen time that he had, I was like, you're still kind of my favorite. One of my favorite parts of this movie, because he was just he was fun, in my opinion. Like I was I, I was very excited to see um, where his character would go. And obviously we see what it is connected to. But I really liked him for just like the very little screen time that he had. See, I just didn't buy into how he was reacting to the reveal of Cersei being this godlike being and like seeing all this like crazy shit happen around him with the deviants and everything. I felt like he was just so, oh, as a matter of fact about it, which made me wonder, like in the world of the MCU, is humanity just like, yeah, there's a, there are all these aliens that are coming all the time to kill us all. You know, no big deal. I mean, it's a world where the snap happened. I would really just buy anything that happened on Earth after that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Like from that standpoint, I guess, I guess, but it's still very odd to kind of see that play out on screen. No, it is. But to be honest, I also found it to be a little refreshing that we didn't get like a five minute, like crazy, you know, wig out scene from the Kit Harrington character trying to process everything. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're like a wizard and you've been fighting these things for thousands of years. Like, OK, fine. Yeah, I'll go with it. I actually sort of was again. It was one of those decisions where I think you're either on board or you're not. And for me, I honestly was on board. He's just like yeah. so cool with it. He's like, you know, why did you stop Thanos and everything else? And I'm just like, Kit, you are way too chill about this right now. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> he couldn't freak out in front of his girl. Come on, you talk. <laughs> Josh, MVP of the cast. Well, as much as I do think Richard Madden is actually really great in the third act and actually kind of saves a lot of it, he is saddled with a character that for the most part isn't doing much. So I really can't say him, even though I kind of want to. I actually think sort of secretly, if I'm going to just try to name somebody that hasn't been named before, I think Barry Kilgan is actually really good in this movie, too. And oh, I, I know that you have issues with his character, but I actually really do think that for me – the things that he has given, the motivation that he has presented, I found to be enough for that character. I like the conflict that he was going through where he knows that if he wanted to, could control all of humanity at once. But he understands that making those mistakes is still something that humans need to have, too. And so he's just off on his own like little corner trying to live his best life. And I think that Barry Kilgan just has an incredible amount of just natural screen presence. He just is always a captivating figure to me. And even in this role that doesn't have much going on, every time he was on screen, I was just so interested in what he was doing as an actor. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. You don't have to agree. That's okay. (laughs) I'm surprised no one has said this. My MVP of the movie is Gemma Chan. Well, she has the most emotional weight. I actually thought that she was the one that was communicating like all the stuff that Chloe Zhao was actually going for here in terms of uh, these godlike beings, uh, emotional connections to humanity and being able to properly convey that and stepping into this uh, into this leadership role reluctantly. So I was really, really impressed with how well she held this film together at times and I think, like I was mentioning before, because she's the lead, she's also given the most to do here. So kind of naturally, she has to be 
maybe the best, uh, unless if you just like individual characteristics that other side characters were given, because she's the one with the fullest and complete emotional arc of all of them. Well, she is. I mean, she is given the most to do in terms of like an action and like kind of plot mechanic standpoint. I do agree with that. In terms of her emotional journey, though, like, I don't know, for me, there's something about that character that still sort of feels like things are just happening and she just happens to react to them. And as the central lead of the movie, I, just something about that just didn't really connect with me. Like, we get to the end and she takes this thing down, but I don't know if it really felt like it informed a whole lot from a character perspective to me. And if you're in, like, a supporting role, it doesn't bother me so much, but as the central lead... I just didn't get an incredible amount of emotional catharsis with her journey, personally. I think that's largely because a lot of the stuff in the film, it happens to her, as opposed to her making the call and then leading to consequences. Yeah, like when she gets the the ball from Ajax to contact um, Erishim, like... I don't even understand necessarily like what then allows her to make the leap of not being able to contact him. And then she can, and then like, okay, she is able to bring it down the big thing at the end because she sensed the energy connecting, but that feels so like tenuous. And that to me is like a, a cop out storytelling device. So yeah, she has the most to do, but I feel like it's all kind of surface level with that character. And if you dig deep, d- there's actually not a ton that she's actively participating in the story. And that is a problem for me when you are supposed to be the lead. Yeah. At the same time, I don't entirely mind so much because I think Cersei is written to be clearly like the most human person of the, of all the Eternals. And I did find her, even though she's not as, um, what's the, what's the term proactive. Um, I found her to be a very effective vessel for us to like be introduced to this world. Basically, I think this film has a lot to juggle to begin with. Like there's so much to introduce us to. And I think to be introduced to all these things through Cersei, I think that does work really well. Now I want to see what happens next. Like now is now that everything is set in stone, the pieces are in place. Now I want to see what kind of active decision-making Cersei can make, especially with that cliffhanger ending. So now that we've talked about the cast here, I want to now ask from a visual storytelling uh, standpoint, obviously a lot has been made about the fact that Chloe Zhao, as I mentioned earlier, has a distinct visual style, which she has brought to her films, The Writer, Nomadland, and so much so that, you know, the cinematography of her movies have been praised So here she's working uh, with Ben Davis, uh, new DP for her. I just want to know, like, what did you guys think of the visual look of this movie? Because so many people I've spoken to have pointed out that this feels different than other Marvel movies. But other than a few wide exterior shots, I didn't really get a sense of that. And I still feel that it has that MCU look. And also, too, and I kind of hate to say this, I don't know why this was the case necessarily, but I was very underwhelmed by the visual effects in this movie. Uh, we already mentioned the deviant uh, big bad uh, voiced by Bill Skarsgård 
earlier, but there are some other elements of like with the deviants, especially like that beach fighting sequence and like a few others where I'm just like, wow, this looks visually like really messy at times. So what did you guys think in terms of like how the action set pieces were directed, the overall look of the movie, visual effects, things of that nature? So for the overall look, I will agree with you, Matt, that this doesn't really look like a Chloe Zhao movie. Like there are a handful of shots here or there. Yeah. That you get that setting sun in the background and you get that haze like that. You can kind of see it, but for the most part, no, this does not look like her. God, do I miss Joshua James Richard so much on shooting one of her movies. Um, however, I do think that the visual effects I'm going to disagree with. I think for the most part, they, to me, I was actually impressed with the design of the effects and, yeah, are the deviants like kind of basic in some instances? Yeah, and I think that the finale is where they kind of the effects are starting to look a little bit weaker. But I loved the whole like golden circular thing that was going on and the way that all of that stuff was designed with the Eternals and their powers. Like I actually really loved all of that stuff and like Thena's armor and spear that she was using. I, I thought that was actually like really really well done. Yeah, I want to add on top of that and say I I thought the deviants they looked pretty cool. They looked like the first time I I got a good look at one, I was like, oh, those things look like they look like muscle tendons. That that was the thought I had. And the other thing that I thought was really neat about them was that they come in different shapes and sizes. There was a there was one scene where I forgot where I think it was Mesopotamia where they were fighting one where Gilgamesh was fighting one. And that thing looked like the like the biggest deviant they fought so far. And I was like, wow, these things are almost kind of like sci-fi kaijus for a second. This is kind of cool. <laughs> so in terms of visuals, uh, I thought it was uh, very, very creative. Actually, the real scene that stood out to me was the fight scene near the end of Act 2. There was this big action sequence in the middle of the woods. And I was taken aback by their choice of like what time of day that this fight is happening in because it looks like it's it looked like it was in the really, really early morning, not like a like a 5:30 a.m. thing where the sun is like the sky is still blue, but the sun is not fully out yet. I may be totally wrong, but the way the the color looked in the fight in that forest that felt very different to me from um, from the rest of uh, Marvel movies. And then um, I found it hard to tell what was going on at times, honestly, oh, really? because of that reason. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I found it. I found it um, well lit enough. Thanks to like those enter those gold ring energy things coming out. Like I found most of it to be well lit enough and yeah, but, but I, I, I can see where you're coming from. Um, as for the third act, I forgot who said this. I, I feel like it was a, either a well-known critic or a well-known director who once complained about most Marvel movies saying that, why is it that every time a hero and a villain fight, they have the same powers and that was what really stood out to me in the third act of Eternals, that everyone has a specific power. And therefore, when they fight, there's like a very different dynamic going on between the two, the two of them or the three of them. And so the entire showdown with Icarus and Makari and Fastos at the end, I thought was just 
Hell yes. A lot. There were, there were so many moments that was just breathtaking. I thought Makari got to demonstrate her speed in such cool ways. The way she outpaces Icarus, the way Fastos outsmarts Icarus, the fighting style was just really interesting to me. It's like it's like they actually took the time to think through choreography and have that be woven into the visual effects. Meanwhile, there's this giant celestial that's being that's like waking up and rising from the ocean. I just thought the entire third act of the film just looked stunning. I agree with you on the third act and I agree with the utilization of powers to make that dynamic and exciting. It was probably literally everything else before that that I had issues with and oh, don't get me started also on the revenant ripoff shot. That was done yeah. with uh, Icarus and the Deviant. I, I like homage is one thing, but that was practically shot for shot. <laughs> yeah, but then how many people seeing Eternals have also seen the Revenant? So, but isn't it weird though that she was saying, like in interviews leading up to it, that this was going to evoke like Terrence Malick or the Revenant and. Did you really get a sense of that? I mean, honestly, in the final product? I mean, like in a shot here or there, like, but consistently throughout the movie, no. But I never really expected that because it's a Marvel movie. Yeah, you, you, exactly. You know what? Like, bring on bring on the Revenant visual callbacks, honestly. Like, it, it just makes it just makes the movie more visually interesting. And, and I just... I want more Marvel movies to just take these kinds of visual leaps. Like I said, it's not so much that I don't want that to happen. It's more so that it fell out of place given the rest of the movie around it. And if Feige and whoever else allowed Chloe to commit to that more so across the board, I too would have been all for it. And quite honestly, like I was mentioning earlier, from an expectation standpoint, it felt like that was the movie we were set up to get here. But the more I saw of the trailers, the clips, the more I was like, oh, no, they got Chloe Zhao to make an MCU film, not Chloe Zhao to make a Chloe Zhao film. Oh, I I never um, I, I don't know what kind of expectations you set yourself when you went into this, but I, I just kept them low. Because it's it's the next Marvel movie. I didn't really. I know, of course, that Chloe Zhao is in the directing chair for this, but like, I didn't. I I don't really think of Marvel movies as the director, the director's film. I think of it as the next lineup, the next the next installment in the lineup from the studio. And so, like, I, that's sort of the expectation I set for myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, an element of this technically that I did like though. And I was listening to it today. I love Ramin Jawadi's score for this, even oh, if yes. the only real memorable track from this seems to be the Eternals theme itself. But upon listening to the album separately, and I knew this while watching the movie, even if nothing else like necessarily stood out to me uh, specifically, it is a really, really beautiful score. And it has some really great moments in it. I, I especially think that the... the and, and there is a section where his score is like being played over like a wordless uh, point in the movie that it just kind of came through and highlighted for me. Like this is probably one of the best scores that I've ever heard in an MCU film. I'd put it up there with the black Panther uh, score if I'm being completely honest with you all. Yeah, I I'm totally agree. I mean, when I think the score does a really incredible job at meeting the thematic ideas 
in this movie about humanity, are we worth saving, seeing the rise and fall of human civilization across centuries. Like I, I tweeted about this saying that the score gave me Sid Meier's Civilization vibes, which is this video game series that I absolutely adore. It just really gives you a 10,000 feet reflective lens of just humanity and the amount of progress we have made um, as a species, honestly, as our time on Earth. And I feel like a lot of that idea is conveyed in the music. Yeah, it's absolutely a lovely score. It's one of the best. It's up there with Black Panther. Yeah, I liked it. It was a good score. <laughs> I, I don't know if I <laughs> am enthusiastic about it, but it worked very well for the movie. And quite frankly, I was just thinking, oh, another Game of Thrones connection with this movie. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Game of Thrones connections with this movie. I got to say, it was an out-of-body experience to hear... <laughs> To hear Jon Snow say, I love you, Cersei. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, God damn it. Like, and then to hear Rob Stark say it, too. Honestly, Matt, the only thing I could think about in those moments were you. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I'm watching this movie and I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience watching that on screen. <laughs> all right. All right. I think we're up to final thoughts here. So anything that we didn't mention that you want to mention or something you want to reiterate, Amanda, I'm passing it over to you first. Yeah, well, um, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, like I said, three characters stood out to me and I just wish that the structure wasn't all over the place and the flashbacks really took me out of all of that. But um, all in all, I'm just really happy that people are responding to this film and they have this emotional connection with these characters and just because they are great characters and they have complex backstories. And um, I'm just excited to see where they're going to go and where we're going to see them next. But all in all, like it was entertaining for the first half and then the second half was really hard for me to sit through and I was struggling because I felt the runtime, but uh, the performances were great and that got me through majority of the time. All right, Kevin. Yeah, I think I've said everything I wanted to say is that like all of the problems and flaws that we've been talking about this movie, I absolutely acknowledge them. It's just the movie made me feel things, guys. <laughs> It made me feel things and it involves these characters who I I was just I was so taken aback by how much I related to them and empathized with them. Plus having uh, seeing this movie with such a cool imaginative visual design to it. It just felt so refreshing to me, even with all the problems and flaws. I felt like I was watching something that was that is so like emotionally rich, like I've like I haven't had this this feeling about a Marvel movie since Black Panther, where I really felt like I was watching something new. Studio. Josh, final thoughts. Uh, I think I also said most of what uh, my thoughts were. I, the only other thing that kind of popped into my mind is, you know, sort of going back to the notion of you're either on board or you're not with this movie and some of its logic. And for the most part I was, but the one thing that did kind of stick in my mind is like, you know, <laughs> in terms of some of the logic bits is when people do find out that the Eternals have been around for thousands of years, um, 
nobody wants to ask about the Bible or Jesus. <laughs> that would be like my main thing. And I get it. Like they're never going to touch that subject in this movie. But th that was one of the things where even for me, I'm like, hmm, I think that would be maybe one of the things we would ask about. And I know you guys had to stay out of stuff, but uh, that probably would have caused about, you know, or uh, corrected, you know, many, many years of suffering out there. So nobody wanted to touch that subject. But, you know, that that's a, kind of outside the movie but overall i just still thought that it's a very flawed movie but i did enjoy it for some bits of it like and i'm not going to give it like a full-throated recommendation it has so many issues but i think that the characters in particular and those performances just really did a lot to win me over as best as it could so despite all those flaws i did find some nuggets to appreciate in this film yeah, man, I'm a mixed bag on this one. There are elements that I do like, as I've illustrated here, my thoughts throughout, but there's a lot of stuff in this that did not work for me. And it's interesting hearing, you know, about the discourse around this in terms of, you know, people going crazy over the Rotten Tomatoes score, uh, the fact that this is also directed by a female filmmaker. And so maybe it has an extra layer of uh, scrutiny placed upon it as well. Um, but at the same time, it's like I, I don't really pay much attention to, you know, the Rotten Tomatoes scores that much anymore as I used to, you know, like 10 years ago. Nowadays, I just watch the movie for me. And for me, this didn't work. Do I think it's the worst MCU film? No, no. That title still goes to Door to Dark World for me. <laughs> but I wouldn't rank this in mid or upper tier, though, either. I have to be honest with all of you. I do think that it is flawed to an extent that some of the other ones may not be your thing and maybe they classify as the worst. That's okay. All of this is subjective at the end of the day. But how well they work as a movie overall, like... This is one that is further near the bottom for me than near the top, I have to say. So I'm very mixed on it. I'm giving it a five out of 10 overall. Amanda, what about you? Yeah, I was going from like a seven or a six, but after watching it like a second time, I'm going to sit at a six out of 10 for this one. Kevin? I'm janking the score up. I'm giving this an eight. All right. Josh? I'm a 6 out of 10, which is mixed but leaning positive. There are things I like about it, but I do think it has a little too many problems for me to say like it's an actual, you know, through and through good movie. All right. And in terms of the Oscar potential for Eternals, sorry, Chloe, you ain't coming back two years in a row. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I mean, whoever was thinking that was already crazy. I, I agree. I agree. You know, there there was talk about like, you know, could this be the next one since Black Panther? I, I understand early on maybe where that was coming from, especially because Chloe is, as I mentioned earlier, such a distinct voice. She isn't a generic action director that they brought in to make an MCU film. She is someone that uh, also is riding a career high at the moment after the success of Nomadland. So I get it. I get it. Delusional, but I get it. So where are we at? I mean, shortlist for visual effects, maybe, but I got to be honest, I I don't think so. Oh, I still think it could get nominated. I have a feeling that the visual effects in something like 
No Way Home. If, if, if I'm picking like one MCU movie, that one sounds like it has the most potential. Now, granted, Sight Unseen could also be a flop. Of the MCU films that we have seen this year, I don't know. I think I might. I think I might be partial towards Shang Chi. Actually, yeah, I still think that the ambition that this movie is going for will still be rather impressive. And I mean, anything could happen. The only thing with with um, the new Spider Man is just that we have not had a Spider Man movie nominated for anything in a very long time. And no, but we have had a Doctor Strange film nominated. I mean, that is true, and that might be the deciding factor, but. I, I still don't know about it. That's the thing. It's like two different competing ideas about those franchises that I'm just not 100% sure of. And like Marvel tends to get nominated in, in this category, but it's also not as consistent as you would think it is. No, I agree with you on that. Usually it depends on their love for the movie overall. And one thing I can say about Eternals is that, as I mentioned earlier, Rotten Tomatoes is done on like a pass fail standpoint, right? But those that are giving this movie a pass kind of like Kevin. They're really giving this movie a pass. Like there are people who love this movie yeah. and are going to bat for it and are very passionate about what it means for them on a personal level. And also what it means uh, for the MCU moving forward. There's a lot of stuff to get really, really excited about here. Not just a cameo by Harry Styles at the very end of this movie. There's a lot of stuff to get really excited about here, people. Oh, I couldn't give less of a crap about <laughs> Harry Styles. Yeah. But I feel like the divisiveness behind it is something that is going to hurt it from getting even a single nomination. Well, I would definitely say that it's visual effects and that's it. Like, I don't see it popping up in any other category, not sound or costumes or anything like that. So I do agree that it's going to get one nomination or it's not going to get anything. And that's the only realistic world it's going to be in. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement. Yeah, I agree with just those maybe costume, but it's probably going to be visual effects. I, I am genuinely surprised other than my little, uh, thing there at the end. I'm very surprised that we didn't talk about the post-credit sequences like at all during well, any here's, of Well, here's the thing for me is that I don't know any context of the post-credit sequences. So, like, I watch them all the time, and normally I have to ask, like, a friend of mine to come with me and explain it, who's a big comic book nerd. So, I have no idea. Like, yeah, it was Harry Styles, but... Okay, he's Thanos' brother. I have no idea what that means with the larger narrative about the MCU, but I assume I will find out in another movie. I that post credit scene, I was like shaking my head. Like I actually physically did a face palm when I saw him on screen because it was just like he was acting like himself. And I don't know how it's gonna go. He could surprise me, but I was yeah, I wasn't vibing with uh, Harry Styles. So. <laughs> I, I wasn't either. Um, so I, I am actually part of the group of people. You might have heard that when they screened this for press, they didn't show us the post credit sequences at first. Well, they had to save that for L.A. because, you know, they clearly deserved it. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, man, we're taking jabs on this one, aren't we? Uh, but. When I walked out of the initial screening of it, I was so confused and perplexed by that decision. It was like truly jarring because we had no idea that that was going to happen. We thought something might have been wrong. We were wondering, do we have to go back in? Or are they going to like replay it or something? Is someone going to like send it to us via link? Like what's going on here? You know, is there just truly not one? So we had all these like questions about it. And so when I finally discovered what it was later that evening, I actually thought it was a joke. 
Yeah, I did too. I was like, <laughs> oh, somebody tw- somebody tweeted it. It's a joke, and now it's like taking off, and everyone's like running with it at this point, right? But then when I actually saw it, I gotta say I was underwhelmed, and I did not care at all. And this is supposed to be the brother of Thanos. What? Yeah, Thanos was this big purple thing. Like this is just Harry Styles. What the hell? Well, maybe he's his half brother. I don't know. Like, like I said before, I have no context of any of these post-credit sequences because they're all alluding to characters that I just don't know. So he might be important and he might be a fine addition to the series. It's just I don't know who this character is. So it's hard for me to really care one way or the other about his inclusion into this series now. And then Kid Harrington's uh, reveal during the post-credits as uh, Dane Whitman. Uh, well, I mean, he is Dean Whitman, but I mean, as the uh, <laughs> as uh, Black Knight uh, is something that, you know, if you, if you know who the character is and such, all that like makes sense. Um, but what I was more intrigued by was I was more intrigued by the off screen voice of was that Mahershala Ali? It seems like it was. Yes. It seems yeah, like we have gotten confirmation that it is uh, him as Blade. That is awesome. I, I that got me more excited than Harry Styles. <laughs> Honestly, it did. I was like. Oh my god, I love Mahershala, and it's a perfect tie-in, but this also gets me really excited for Kit Harrington in the future. Yes. For that reason. Even though I, I I'm really sorry of it. E- even though on Thrones, like I feel like Kit Harrington is really good at doing physical, like action set pieces. Like his acting still leaves like a lot to be desired from me. He had so many years to work on the Jon Snow character that it was like inevitable that at some point he would become compelling <laughs> eventually. <laughs> but <laughs> Real uh, monkeys on a typewriter energy when <laughs> talking about Kid Harrington's acting. But outside of that, like in every movie that I've seen him in, he has failed to excite me on screen as an actor. So him being given a substantial role like this in the MCU moving forward, I'm intrigued. But at the same time, I'm going to keep my expectations low from a performance standpoint. Sure. I mean, I kind of agree, but then I also don't really care. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as long as I get to see him cut some people down with that blade, I'll be, I'll be happy. Exactly. Just show up with that face and yeah, that's fine. That's all I need. (laughs) The face is important. Yep. (laughs) That's like the subtitle to the movie, the face and the sword. Yes. (laughs) Well, that's a different movie. (laughs) All right, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here for our review of Eternals on the Next Best Picture podcast. Tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the Internet. Oh, you can find me on FilmInquiry.com, ThatShelf.com, and AwardsWatch.com. I am on Twitter at K-L-E-E underscore Film Review. And Amanda, tell everyone where they can find you on the Internet. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. This was great. You guys can always find me over at AMX NDA Reviews on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can check out my YouTube, Candid Cinema, and my website, CandidXCinema.com. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.
how did we go that entire review and not mention Salma Hayek? Oh, shit. <laughs> mm. well, I think that says more about Salma Hayek's character in the movie. Well, if I had if I had the chance, I would have brought up that one scene which really, really got me, which was when Salma Hayek tells everyone, like when the group splits and Salma mm-hmm. Hayek tells them, like, I want you to go and live your own life and I want you to eventually one day come back and tell me what you've learned. Oh, what a great scene. I agree with you. I did like that a lot. And I thought that her scene with Richard Madden was also uh, really well done when she explains to him, you know, the true purpose behind Irisham and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm going to include this at the end of the podcast now. <laughs> Editing. <laughs> Post credits of the next Best Picture podcast. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense for this movie. <laughs> Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.